You sang a creed just now, a credo, I believe, and it goes back to the heart actually, but later it becomes a declaration that we believe in something. And I'm going to read you two confessions that we might call creedal in their uh, origin. The first one is the Belgic Confession. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you, but uh, it's written in 1561 by a Frenchman named Guy de Brie. I don't speak French, so for those of you who do, forgive me. Uh, it looks like Guido. Uh, Guy de Brie is his name. And it consisted of 37 articles. He was a student of John Calvin. And during this time, you have the Anabaptist, which really means the rebaptizers. You have the Catholics, and you have what's becoming known as the Lutheran and the Reformation movement. Calvinism is, is being uh, taught. And uh, these rebaptizers had, a, had, been, had been causing some questions. And uh, do you have to be baptized again, really, was what they were known for. Um, so during the Synod of Antwerp, this document is first presented, and then later, this, the Synod of Dort. Some of you might have gone to Dort College, Dort University. The, the heritage of Dort is a Christian Reformed church, and it, of course, changes a lot over history, but this would be the Dutch Reformed theology, 1619. Let me read a part of it. Originally, from 1561, revised later on, the sufficiency of the Holy Scriptures. You can watch on the screen. I'll read it. It is a little long. See if you can lock into the passage. We believe that those Holy Scriptures fully contained the will of God, and that whatsoever man ought to believe unto salvation is sufficiently taught therein. For since the whole manner of worship which God requires of us is written in them at large, it is unlawful for anyone, though an apostle, to teach otherwise than we are now taught in the Holy Scripture. Nay, though it were an angel from heaven, he writes from Galatians 1.8. As the Apostle Paul says, For since it is forbidden to add unto or take away anything from the Word of God, it does therefore evidently appear that the doctrine thereof is the most perfect and complete in all respects. Neither may we consider any writings of men, however holy these men may have been, of equal value with those divine scriptures. Nor are we consider any custom, or the great multitude, or antiquity, or succession of times and persons, or councils, decrees, or statutes, as of equal value with the truth of God. Since the truth is above all, for all men are of themselves liars and more vain than vanity itself. Therefore, we reject with all our hearts whatsoever does not agree with this infallible rule. As the apostles have taught us, saying, Prove the spirits whether they are of God. Likewise, if any one cometh unto you and bringeth not his teaching, receive him not into your house. So Guy de Brise, uh, writes this much longer document, and when he is then brought before the Spanish Inquisition, the Catholics, and they try him, and they find him guilty, and they condemn him to death. He writes a letter to his wife. For you who like history, I would encourage you to look up Debris and find the, the letter he wrote. is a precious letter he writes to his wife, and he is hanged by the Catholic Church for his heresy. They tire of his long-winded reading that he's giving uh, on the gallows, and they push him off the scaffold to hurry up the process. It's a dark chapter in church history, but the Lutherans, the Catholics, and others, Calvinists included, killed one another, the Anabaptists in particular, for their heretical belief. 
Uh, these were things they believed. They believed them so staunchly they were willing to die for them. Others didn't believe them. They were willing to kill to try to stop them. We have a picture of the cover of the first booklet ever printed that will become known as the Westminster Confession. The humble advice of assemblies of divines, now by the authority of parliament fitting at Westminster, that'd be the abbey, concerning a confession of faith with quotations and text of scripture annexed, presented to them lately, that would be recently in other words, to both houses of parliament, printed in London and reprinted in Edinburgh, by Evan Taylor, printer, to the King Most Excellent Majesty, 1647. Actually written the year before. The Westminster Confession becomes sort of the, the whetstone for the Reformation going forward, but largely taking its cue from the Belgic Confession, what we just looked at. I want to read just one brief section, again, about the sufficiency of Scripture. What were the Reformers saying about Scripture being all that we need and moving away from the Catholic Church. Remember, we talk about history, and uh, we've talked about this many times. The Reformers were trying to reform what was then the only church, the Catholic Church. And they were generally all priests. They're trying to reform the church that had gotten into error. And, of course, it, it uh, metastasizes in lots of ways. And we've shared with you before, if you're a Protestant, you have that protester's Bible. And that's what they refer to. Those protesters wrote that Bible. And so that's what we're reading, the beginning of this. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture or, by good and necessary consequence, may be deduced from Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit. By the way, pause for just a second. The idea that the canon is closed, even if the Spirit spoke something, the Reformers said, no, you don't include that anymore. We're, we're stopping this inclusion. That was their belief. Unto which nothing at this time may be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things which are revealed in the Word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and the government of the church common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence, according to the general rules of the Word, which are always to be observed." They're giving latitude for what we call church polity, how churches are governed and led and run independently. So the tension is between you can't change the word of God. It's sufficient. It's all you need for a life of godliness and practice. But beyond that, we'll have some differences in how we would conduct a church, how we might carry out the activities of the local church. A question I have for us to think about today under this broad stroke statement that the scripture is sufficient, the word of God is sufficient for all we need is, if you've come to Christ at some part in your life, you believe Christ lived, that he died, that he was buried, and that he was resurrected, and you have put your trust in Christ and Christ alone for your salvation, that you believe in him, you have been given a free gift called eternal life. At some point in your story, you may have heard that explained further and we talk about eternal security, or the common phrase, once saved, always saved. Some grew up with that language, some did not. 
that once you've trusted Christ and Christ alone, nothing can take that away from you. So we would argue that you believe the Scripture is sufficient for salvation. The Scripture is what we need. We don't go by our experience to prove we're saved. We go by what the Word has said. We've trusted in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Make sense? Now, the question is, do we believe that Scripture is sufficient for our sanctification? Is Scripture sufficient for our salvation? Is it sufficient for our sanctification? Or to put that in another way, if we believe the Scripture tells us how to be saved, do we believe the Scripture is sufficient for how to live? And for most of us, that point in time of salvation is pretty clear. You might even have it written in your Bible. You might know the day and date. You might know the year, the time you trusted Christ. But I always find it attention in my own life as well, that I trust Christ for the final payoff, that when I die, I'm going to go to heaven. But do I trust him between now and then? For my marriage, my health, my family, my kids, my grandkids, my job, my career, my profession, my practice, all the unknowns of life, do I really trust him for those things? And I've said many times, I think it's somewhat backwards that we trust him for this big event that he's going to save us when we die and walk across this threshold to the next one time only. But do we trust him for the little things? Now, not little when we face him, right? But they're small compared to dying. Is the word of God sufficient for our salvation? I hope you would say yes. Is the word of God sufficient for your sanctification? And that's what I want to think with you a little bit about this morning. Our salvation is based on his word, what we know from his word, not from our experiences. Our salvation is not based on how you or I feel. If it's based on how we feel, we may as well be Arminian. On a good day, maybe we're saved. On a bad day, oi. On a bad day, who knows? What a horrible way to live. If Christ's death was not sufficient for your sins and mine, Paul would say we're fools to believe any of it. So we're grounding our salvation in what the word says, not what our experience feels like. Scripture is sufficient for our salvation and our sanctification for everything pertaining to life and godliness. Have a Bible open to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Written to believers who were facing persecution for their faith, 1 Peter, the first letter he writes, probably to a group in Asia Minor, and they're suffering, they're being persecuted because they believe in Christ. Now, we often read First Peter about suffering in general terms. It's very precise in that book that you're suffering for Christ's sake. The second letter he writes them is the same audience, in Asia Minor more than likely. And here, the new element <clears throat> has been that error has started to creep into the local churches. Listen to verse, chapter 3, verse 17 of the same letter. Therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. They've been persecuted for the gospel. Now error has, is creeping in. So Peter is writing them a letter to help them. So 2 Peter chapter 1, the first four verses. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. 
seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. There it is. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these things, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of all the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Number one, Scripture is sufficient and reveals the truth of God's promises. This book is not just a compilation of a bunch of authors over 2,000 years. This book is a compilation of his promises, of his truth. It's a book on which you can depend not only for your salvation, the big thing, but every day of your life. It is sufficient for a life of godliness, a life of goodness. Now, the greetings in chapter 2, verse 1 of Second uh, uh, Peter 2, verse 1, are important. He first talks about himself as Simon Peter. Why does he use the double name? Um, I think it's a tip back to his story. It's a tip back to his life. He's Simon before Christ calls him and changes his name to, to Peter. And they wouldn't know that story. And he's reminding them of what he was before and how Christ changed his life, but he keeps the two names together. Simon Peter, he adds then the word bondservant. In recent years, the word doulos has become popularized in Christian writing. Uh, doulos means a slave. In the first century, it was a very common word for slave. And both Paul and Peter use it to describe themselves as bondservants of Jesus Christ. They have a master. They've willingly submitted themselves to someone else. Paul, a bondservant. Peter, a bondservant. I'm a willing slave to a greater master. I think the implication is he's not his self-made man. It's not all about him. As he continues to define himself, he then says he's an apostle. Uh, Simon Peter, my before and after name. I'm a willing servant to a greater master. I'm not the master. And oh, by the way, I'm an apostle. An apostle uniquely, of course, were the 12. Judas defects. He's later replaced. But the word can be used in other ways. But the way Peter's using it here, I, I was chosen by Christ and I'm sent by Christ. It means the one sent. Don't miss what he's doing. Before and after, I was Simon, now I'm Peter. I'm a willing servant to a greater master. I'm not a self-made man. And I'm sent to you. It's a fascinating way of speaking for God. He's about to talk to them the very word of God. What he writes in this letter is God's word. Did the first century writers of our New Testament know they were writing scripture, quote unquote? I don't know the answer to that. But God did, and it becomes scripture. And so these letters they wrote were then listened to by these audiences eagerly. They couldn't wait to receive them. Paul, uh, Peter says he's a servant, a willing servant to a greater master, but he speaks as authority, verse 1, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. He levels the playing field. He goes, yeah, I may be an apostle. Sure, I was with Christ. Yes, I denied him, and yes, he restored me. And yes, I was part of the movement of the gospel, especially in the book of Acts. You read Peter's prominent role preaching these incredible sermons with thousands of people coming to Christ at Peter's sermons. He says, I came to faith the same way you did. Now, notice something. He says, received a faith. You have received a faith 
of the same kind as ours. Now, we all know faith is a gift of God, but what Peter does here creates all sorts of discussion in the scholastic realm of uh, evangelical thinking. What Peter is saying here, I would argue, is that you didn't exercise faith. You didn't come to your own conclusion to believe in Christ. He gave it to you. And you received that faith and embraced it. Recently, we had a a celebrity of sorts in the news world who left major programming and started his own channel. And if you've heard his story, he talks about he studied world religions, and he concluded that a particular one was the right one, and therefore he joined that church. Bravo. Christianity didn't work that way. You don't go to a world religions class at Belmont or Vanderbilt or Duke or Dort or or Auburn. You don't go to a world religion and say, oh, that's the one I'm going to believe. Well, you can, but that's not how Christianity works. Christ gives you the faith. He calls you. He summons you. And at some point in your journey, you respond to it and you do embrace it. For by grace you've been saved through faith. You embrace that faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God So I can't say, look, how I did it, and you should do it the same way. It does change, I think, some of our thinking about our salvation. He gave us this faith. I often tell Cindy when we go to a film, I say, you know, we got to get there on time because the first five minutes of the movie are the most important. And she's like, oh, we can get there. No, no, if if I'm late, we're not going to go watch it. I want to see what that director has done from the moment they introduced the film, even when they're showing the beginning credits and setting it up. I want to see because they have something very specific in mind. And if you're a student of film, you pay attention to everything they do. Why did they start the scene like this? It sets the whole movie. And I argue the first five minutes are the most important. The first few verses of every book of your Bible are important. And we can so quickly pass over these words. Simon Peter, a bondservant, an apostle, sent from God, and the faith, and we can just blow over him. Don't do that. Take time to dwell and to see what he's doing because it sets a table. He's going to then explain faith that it's going to be, look at your Bible, granted by the righteousness of God and our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So this faith you're receiving has been granted by God. It's given to us. And then he says, by the righteousness of our God and Savior. Paul explains his knowledge of God was due to God giving it to him. You didn't decide it. Peter didn't decide it. God called them and he revealed himself to us. Now, he talks about his glory and excellence. And then in verses 3 and 4, he has three stanzas I want you to notice. Granted to us, called us granted to us. See him on the screen? Granted to us, called us, granted to us. He's granted to us everything. If you're an underliner in your Bible, underline everything. Everything pertaining to life and godliness. He's called us by his own glory and excellence. And I think Peter has in mind here that when that faith was given to you and you responded by faith, there was something about this person and work of Jesus that compelled you and pulled you in. I was 15 years of age when I came to Christ out of a very licentious, stupid, drug-using uh, couple of years as a teenager. And when I was introduced to the personal work of Jesus Christ, the overwhelming experience I had was to embrace that I was forgiven. Because I grew up in a culture where you could never be sure you were forgiven. 
and you had to keep doing things and hope that you did the right things and maybe you did this and that and the other. Maybe you'd be forgiven in the end, not of everything, but most things. And to know that I was completely forgiven was mind-numbing. Because the guilt and shame I lived with, even as a 15-year-old, was overwhelming. He loved me. He died in my place, on my behalf, instead of me. He took my sin upon himself. He paid for the penalty. And he says, you're forgiven. That was a picture of the glory of God. That was a picture of his righteousness. That was a picture, as Peter says, of his glory and excellence. And I hope you remind yourself of how you came to Christ as well. Because it wasn't just that you got to go to heaven. There's a lot more going on in your conversion and mine. He granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. He called to us by his glory and excellence. And then he granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. We often talk about it, maybe your grandparents did if you don't, that the promises of God. Uh, there used to be little books about the promises of God, and they were key passages. All they were taking these passages, promise of salvation, promise of forgiveness, promise of a future home, whatever. And you have little references where you go and look, oh, those promises. It's the scriptures, the promise. What is Peter referring to when he says his precious and many of his promises? The word. Your salvation and mine is not based upon our experience, our feeling, our deductions, our conclusions, our study of world religions. Your salvation is mine is based upon the fact that he called you to himself. He, we might say he gave us the faith to trust in Christ and Christ alone. We embraced that faith. We believed in him. We trusted in him. And then as we begin to see him, I hope you're blown away by your salvation. I hope you're moved by the fact that he forgives you of all your sin. And how do you know that? Because of your experience? No. Because our experience will shame us. Our experience will remind us of our past. Our experience will bring new things in front of us where we fail and sin. And we go, how can I be forgiven one more time? Our experience rarely helps in our salvation journey. Sometimes it does. But the word always helps to solidify. Interesting, he says, precious and magnificent promises. I don't think of promises as being precious too often, do you? If you remember when you had your, for those of you that have children, had your firstborn child, when um, we had our first daughter, it was the day people had those little suction cup stickers that said baby on board, and they'd put them on their car. Cindy hated those things, so they were so pretentious, so she would put one on. But I remember driving with our firstborn in the car seat going, uh, we've got precious cargo in here. Like I was driving 10 and 2 with a seat belt under the speed limit watching everybody. I got a baby on board. Don't hit my car. It's a precious car. First time your wife hands you that baby and you don't get the head right, and, uh, and they get all mad at you. Hold the head. Hold the head. All right. It's not going to fall off, you know. It's precious. Do you think of God's promises as precious? I find the, the pathos, the passion, the emotion behind that language. They're precious and magnificent. That he has removed your sin as far as the east is from the west. So far has he removed our transgressions from us. That he's called us by name. He's adopted us as illegitimate children. He's granted us an inheritance to eternal life. We're part of a kingdom we could never earn or deserve or marry into. He says, I'll take care of all that. And I'll send my son to die in your place, on your behalf, instead of you, to ensure that, to cement it in your mind. That's a promise. 
Don't we like people that keep their promises? Don't we dislike people that don't keep their promises, don't keep their word? You're holding in your hand precious and magnificent promises. Is Scripture sufficient to save you? Is Scripture sufficient to sanctify you? If not, we're in trouble. Scripture must be sufficient at all levels or, to echo Paul, we're fools to believe it. Well, he finishes with this concept of faith and fleeing the corrupt world. And I think this is where the, he moves from the, the high level to the shoe leather. And he says, um, faith you're given is to get out of the lust of the world. The lust of the world's always going to be there. We don't hate the world, we're in it. The lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, boastful pride of life, I repeat them all the time because we need to be reminded all the time. We live in a fallen context as fallen people and sin is rampantly around us and it's always going to tell us otherwise about God. The culture in which you and I live will never, maybe that's an overstatement, I believe never reinforce your faith. Test me and see if I'm wrong. But Scripture gives us a life of faith and a practice of godliness that is to get us out of the lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, and the boastful pride of life. So Scripture reveals the truth of God's promises. Scripture tells us he provided all we could ever need, not necessarily all that we want. Turn in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 1. Lastly, we'll look at two verses in Hebrews 1. Hebrews chapter 1. The book of Hebrews written to a dispersed group of Jewish Christians. We do not know the author. It is a massive document. It deals primarily with the superiority, the supremacy, the firstborn nature of who this Jesus Christ is, that he's the perfect sacrifice and therefore the only intermediary between God and man. At the time when Hebrews is written, there is more than likely what we call an obsession with angelology. Some in this room are old enough to remember when the angel movement was uh, from the Raphael prints at the hobby shops to the Raphael cups, Raphael shirts, uh, to the uh, stories and movies and uh, series that were all about angels. There was this whole angelology thing. What's good about living long enough is you see all these things come and go. And boy, it was popular when it came, and then all that stuff ended up in garage sales not long after. It's a very short shelf life. But what, let's say the American culture was enamored with guardian angels and all these angels, and what are angels doing? And no question, it's intriguing to study what Scripture says about angels, but angels always point to Christ. Angels tell you, don't bow down, don't worship, don't be afraid. I'm bringing you a message from God. The book of Hebrews is, listen to me carefully, you don't need angels. If you want to talk with God, have a relationship with God, have a communication with God, be rightly related, you don't need any angelic mediator because you've got Christ. That's what the book of Hebrews is largely about. Hebrews 1.1, God. Interesting way to begin a letter. God. After he spoke long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions, and in many ways. And these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. How do we know that Scripture is sufficient not 
only for salvation, but for our ongoing sanctification, for the practice of life and godliness. Number one, we are told God spoke. Um, God spoke to Moses. God spoke through prophets. He spoke through a burning bush. He spoke through uh, an angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, when he met Abram, Abraham. He spoke when we wrestled with Jacob. Um, he speaks in all kinds of ways through Moses' writing, through Samuel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Haggai, Malachi, take your pick. When a prophet was called to tell something and write it later, they are speaking for God. The author of Hebrews says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions in many ways, he spoke through dreams, he spoke through visions, but now we would say he's spoken finally, let's use that word carefully, he's spoken finally, he's spoken completely in his son in these last days. He he explains who this Christ is, that he is not only the heir of all things, but he's the creator. Lines up with what Paul writes in Colossians 1. Jesus Christ was there at creation. In my sanctified imagination, Jesus Christ is the one who created the universe. God didn't just think it and manifest it. Christ somehow created it. He is eternally existent as the Son. He enters time born of a woman, born under the law at the proper time. He lives eternally at the Father's right hand. He has always existed. And the author of Hebrews is saying, God spoke a lot of ways. He spoke to our fathers, through burning bushes, through prophets, through dreams and visions. But now, finally, he summed it all up. He's tidied it up. He's completed it. And he's spoken in his last days through his Son. All that his Son has done. Who, by the way, is the heir and the creator, the always existent one. To say it very simply, listen to the Son. When you read the Word, look for the Son, but also listen to the Son. Lots of authors talk about the scarlet thread that runs through Scripture. They see Jesus in every verse. There's a huge movement in some circles about, they, they use the word gospel-centered preaching. If you don't use the word gospel enough times, you're a heretic. I mean, it's interesting how we come and go in these trends. But you should see at a very basic level, Christ revealed in the stories. You should see at a pretty consistent level, the stories are about the Messiah. For years, I had a dear friend who's Jewish, and he said, Michael, Jesus is in every psalm. He was always categoric. I go, I don't know if he's in every psalm. And over the years, I've conceded, he's in every psalm. You're not trying to find something that's not there, but the scripture ultimately points to the person and work of Christ, or it's just a philosophy. It's just a history book. It's just another text on the religious shelf of life. Listen to the Son. He's eternal. He's complete. He's always true. He's always reliable. And when He speaks, it's not only sufficient for your salvation, it's sufficient for your entire life, for your sanctification. Now keep that in mind. When you trusted Christ, it was probably a, a fairly short event. And maybe you grew afterwards, or maybe you didn't grow, maybe you ambled off through high school and college and you lived kind of crazy and you came back to the Lord, whatever. Maybe you rededicated your life, whatever that means. We go through all these things. And at some point you got serious with your faith. Are you listening to your Savior? Was he sufficient to save you, yes or no? 
Is he sufficient to see you through to be sanctified, to be the person he wants you to be? To be a little less like Michael and a little more like Jesus. That's to me the measure. Am I a little less like Michael was last year or two and a little more like Jesus? Now you can't. It's hard. It's impossible to measure. But it's a great question to ask. Am I a little more patient? Am I a little more kind? Am I a little more merciful? Because I'm a high justice, black and white kind of guy, if you haven't figured that out. That's wrong, that's right. Next subject. Has he worked on some of your anxiety? A person with a knot in his or her stomach, what a miserable way to live. Can you let that anxiety go and trust your Savior? A person who's bent on sin and self-fulfilling, whether it's, you know, we feed ourselves with lots of things to satiate the longing, most of it's sin, but we, we, we eat sin to dull the pain, and then as soon as we do, we regret doing it because it never satisfies. And does that bother you and me enough? We say, this is insanity, Jesus. How do I break this cycle just to lessen its grip on me a little bit? Is the word of Christ sufficient to save you? Is the word of Christ sufficient to sanctify you? The point in time, from one view, is kind of an easy deal. You check the box, you walk to the aisle, you pray to prayer, someone explain it to you, you trusted Christ, you wrote it in front of your Bible, I believe it, I, I know it for sure. It's the living that's the challenge, it's the living by faith that's the challenge. How do I live by faith? Apart from the word, you can't. I can't. Listen to the sun. Our experience, at least my opinion on this, experiences will never tell me the right thing about God. Maybe rarely. I was sitting with Meredith Kinder, one of our elders and one of our therapists as well, and he and I were talking last week. I said, Meredith, when you hear of the sufficiency of Scripture, what does that mean to you? What's it mean to the average person you know, sitting in the chair? And he, we had a great conversation. And he said, well, first of all, I wouldn't know anything apart from the Scripture. What I would know would just be my experiences. So the first thing, it gives me a knowledge of God. And he went on. And he said, the other thing I would know, I would know a worldview. Because apart from Scripture, I wouldn't know that God cares for the world. If you've only lived in Middle Tennessee or maybe one or two places, you haven't moved, haven't been abroad, haven't flown over the big ocean, your view is pretty small. That's why it's good to travel abroad and live abroad if you're young and single and haven't got kids in a mortgage yet and, and do those things to see what the world's like, the big old world out there. We think we're the center of it. We're not. McFly, we're not. We're very arrogant over here. We're very myopic in our view of life and how things work. The ugly American goes all around the world and says, why don't you do this? Well, your food tastes terrible. I don't like this. Where's the meat? Where's the, I mean, we're, we're, we're ridiculous. It shows our small view. I wouldn't have a biblical worldview. More importantly, God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. He wishes that none perish, no, not one, make disciples of all nations, ethnos, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Oh, hello, hello, hello. Those aren't Jews. That's right, they're not Jews. And they're most part of the world. So we talked about it gives us a biblical worldview. To say it in terms we use a lot, God's word, God's spirit, 
and God's people. That's what the word reveals to us. I must have the foundation of what God's word says. I need God's spirit to indwell me, to change me, to transform me, to help me be a little less like Michael and a little more like Jesus. And I need the body around me to shape in that so I don't get lost in my own nonsense. That's why the church, I don't know, maybe some of you believe it. I don't think the average church believes it. This is the most important audience on the planet. You are the most important gathering on the planet. Because you're a people that have said, I'm called by his name, and you assemble here to worship. We don't do it perfectly. We may be doing a lot of things wrong, but we're trying to sing. We're trying to pray. We're trying to have good lyric in our song. We're doing something corporately that you'd never do by yourself. You sit and listen to someone like me prattle on about the Bible for a half hour or more. Why do you do this? Because you're supposed to? I hope it's because God's word and God's spirit and God's people help us understand who we are as a people of God in a world, as Peter said, is hostile to what you believe. Think of it like a hospital or a tune-up or a triage that you come once in a while and you get around people that you know, embolden you up and say, stay in the fight, stay in the battle, don't quit. I need God's word. I need, God, I need God's people too. To tell me you're being, you're being stupid, Michael. Stay in the fight, Michael. No, no, you're not wrong, Michael. Just hang in there. It's okay, Michael. You'll get through this. It's a long journey. You got all your life to figure it out. Don't lose sleep over this one little thing. Someday they will no longer be teenagers. Someday they'll bring a grandchild home as a peace offering. <laughs> and you'll be so happy. You'll forget all the teenage years. You know, before Christmas, we ask our children to sometimes write a Christmas list. Why parents do that is a different story. But they write a Christmas list of all the presents they want. I mean, now it's gotten so ridiculous that we, you know, just let our kids buy it for themselves. But nevertheless, we have a history there. What do you want for Christmas? When I was a kid, I wrote a Christmas list. And you leave it somewhere conspicuous so mom and dad might see it. If you got everything you wanted on your Christmas list, how did you feel Christmas about four or five in the afternoon? You probably broke a few things if you were like me. Something didn't have the parts. We ran out of batteries, whatever the story was. I often think that we have this pathetic list of things that if we have, life's going to work. I've had it. Early in marriage, have to do certain things to keep our marriage strong. We have to save a little money so our kids can go to college. We have to help them and train them and teach them and you know, do math equations and life equations and science projects and get them off to college, God willing, if they can do that. If they can't figure out what the next chapter is, try and help them with their dating and love crush related, the triangulation of teenage girls. Oh my God, help me. Uh, all, all the things you go through and you launch them out the door, you're pushing the doors and go, go, go. And, and you're saving money and you're planning and you're investing and you're talking to financial planners and you're dealing with your health issues. And you're, we're on this treadmill. We're making these lists. We're lists, lists. Lists are fine. I'm getting really close to 6-0, really close to 6-0. No age has ever really bothered me. 30 kind of bugged me, but 60 just seems interesting. It just seems interesting. I mean, feel, it's really old around the staff here at Fellowship, too, but it's really interesting. And I'm going, man, I maybe have 8, 15 years, 
Who knows? I don't know that I want to live really long. What list do I need to check off? And things start to change a little bit. And you start asking yourself, you know, all the things I had on the list, some were good, some were indifferent, some were immaterial. A lot of them were wants. Some of them were needs. Christ provides all you need. Not necessarily all we want. And if we had all we want, we'd want more. Right? I've shared on a number of occasions, I forget where sometimes, but I went through a, a car season. I've always driven cars until they were dead. And um, a few years ago, I had a perfectly good 2005 Honda Pilot, and on an impulse, I bought a, a high-end luxury SUV. And um, Cindy was fine. We had the money. We paid cash for it, all those good things. And I sold this, my old, I call it my baseball glove, my 2005 Pilot to a friend's daughter who needed a car. So I felt like it's, you know, it's going to some, it was a great car. Didn't need to sell it. Just was a stupid, impulsive decision. It was a couple-year model old car, luxury. The dealership was great. Had so many little things wrong with it. I always had to go back to the dealership. Now, they were great. We had the Wi-Fi, free Starbucks coffees. They gave me a loaner that was a brand-new luxury SUV of what I was driving, which was a two-year-old one. And so after about six or seven months of this, I'm going, man, this brand-new one sure is a lot nicer than that two-year-old one I have. So I went to the sales manager and said, okay, you got me. The hook's down here. What would it take to get that newer one? And, of course, they play this game. But anyway, I call Cindy. I'm going to buy another one. She goes, oh, buy it. Okay. So I get the next one. I didn't drive it a year. And I sold it. And I bought an old pilot. <laughs> what I wanted wasn't what I needed. I'm not saying it's wrong. Don't, don't hear, if you hear that, you missed the whole point of the illustration. Sometimes what we want is not what we need. Spiritually speaking, what do you want? And what do you need? See, sometimes our wants, and God might let us have some of them to realize we don't really need them. Your salvation and your sanctification are sufficiently grounded in the truth of Scripture that you and I have everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. Everything. It's aligning our wants with our needs. Billy Graham wrote, Millions of people today are searching for a reliable voice of authority. The Word of God is the only real authority we have. His Word sheds light on human nature, world problems, and world suffering. But beyond that, it clearly reveals the way to God. The message of the Bible is the message of Jesus Christ, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It is the story of salvation, the story of your redemption and mine through Christ, the story of life, peace, and eternity. Our faith is not dependent upon human knowledge and scientific advance, but upon the unmistakable message of the Word of God. As we have been, let me ask you to stand, and we're going to read the two brief questions from the shorter catechism about our scripture and with this we will close number one what is the chief end of man what rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him 
I hope you'll spend some time in the rule to glorify and enjoy him. God bless you. Have a great week.